So look, uh, what what I think that people need to be doing to maintain sanity through all of this, with this extraordinary array of information and diversity of views that's being put forward, is that you have to, at some level, run in your mind your own kind of risk benefit decision process. Mm. You 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 know you you can't go into this without trying to get some handle on what the actual risk is. And when you look at risk, you've got to discern between what is the risk of the virus and what can I do to reduce that risk. We talked about hands washing and sneezing in the hands and all the rest of it. But also what is the risk of the government mandated policy decisions to my life? This is Dr. Rowe, and you are listening to The Cicado Show with Dr. Rowe and Harms. Cicado means to seek turning points. And on this show, where two completely different generations tackle the most challenging topics that people are facing today, the mission is to provide you with what you need in order to create a turning point in your life now. Above all else, the main reason that we chose to create these shows is because we both have a passion for helping people go through life transformation, for improving their lives, for taking their lives to a completely different level. And it's our hope, our genuine sincere hope, that by the end of each of these episodes, you will have gained at least one insight which you can take away and apply directly into your life. Practical tools, voices that come from both generations, younger generation with tips and tools, older generation with a sense of wisdom and experience. So you can help unlock your true potential to give you the opportunity to make changes both on a personal, professional, financial and relationship level. To give you a chance to impact both your life and the lives of other people around you. So we welcome you. We welcome you to The Cicado Show. Before we jump into the show, let me just tell you a little bit about becoming a Cicado supporter now. If you love what we do on the show, have gained transformational insights and positive outcomes or any small shifts which have allowed you to create turning points in your life, then please head to cicado.com and become a supporter of the show now. By supporting the show, we can continue to expand by getting you better quality production, spending more time deep diving important topics and creating more exclusive supporter perks as well as getting great guests on. And by the way, as a thank you for becoming a supporter and depending on which supporter tier you select at cicado.com, these perks range from my weekly recipe for success emails through to audios and video courses from my 23 steps to success, which includes online modules on how to find your life balance, gaining confidence, improving your time management, making successful career transitions, understanding financial independence, creating a life purpose, understanding and how to manage your money, becoming a money master, understanding negotiation techniques, learning to communicate more effectively and so much more. So don't delay. It takes less than two minutes and you can become a Cicado supporter, helping to expand the show and get special perks as a thank you. Become a supporter now at Cicado.com. Let's get back to the show. Hi, it's Harms here and welcome to another episode of The Cicado Show. Today, we are rejoined by two of our most popular guests on the show so far, and that is Robert McKirk and Mel 
Aldridge. We'll be referring to them as Robin Mel as we go forward. For those who have missed the first episode they featured on, there are two things to do straight after this show. That is head to Alliance for Natural Health International at anhinternational.org to see the incredible work and the health information available for free on their website. And secondly, head to episode 20 of the Cicado show where you can get a full background on their incredible stories and it will get you up to date. The quick shortcut to that is just head to episode 20 show notes at cicado.com and then you can get a quick visual on their background as well. Because for this episode, we wanted to dive straight into our burning questions that we have had and get some questions answered immediately. Because the reality is the feedback and the amazing thing was the feedback we got from the last episode they appeared on, episode number 20, was fantastically positive. And I personally made changes to my own diet in order to approach immunity in a better way. We did also have the feeling, myself and Ro, that we would unlock a whole host of new questions and listeners have fired in those questions. And to add to that, the very fact that we are going into a second lockdown, and we are actually in a second lockdown as of recording of this, and we are entering the winter months when typically we are at greater risk of common health challenges, we just had to have them back talking on this subject. So Ro, over to you to introduce Robert Mel <laughs> quickly for our listeners so we can get into these questions. Um, I just want to tell you both and the listeners, I've been like a cat on a hot tin roof this morning. I just wanted to get in to the studio and get this recording done because, oh my gosh, so many of you know we rebranded the show and Cicado is a hybrid word, uh, seek meaning to seek. And uh, Cardo, I think, came turning from, point. from the Greek. Was that right? Greek, yes. When we discovered it, we were found it meant turning point and, and Rob and Mel I don't know if you realize but that's why we rebranded so it's seeking turning points the show evolved into that name and actually that's where we are right now we are a massive massive turning point in history and uh, you know who better to have on than Rob and Mel I just want to thank you both for coming on because I know we've had to sort of squeeze your time you're doing so much great work out there and the subject today of course is dealing with how do people come through this next phase of we are talking about lockdown, but the reality is that's an enforced lockdown. We're really talking about just a natural evolution of this virus. But unfortunately, I mean, I'd be interested to see your view on this. I think we've just been, there's been so many labels attached to it that people are bloody confused right now. What we want to do is give people some great tools. We've got parents, we've got elderly generations, so people who are maybe slightly more fragile. We've got the sort of middle-aged people, the 40s, 50s, the teenagers. Everybody's grappling around in fear at the moment, but not being given the tools to become resilient, both mentally, emotionally, and in terms of diet. So I'm going to throw the question straight at you both and, and welcome you in, because I know you're used to being in the pit with us here, is what are some of the first things we can do from a, an immunity building perspective to start making our bodies resilient? Because even with the stress that's going on around us, that can lower our immune system. So thank you both for coming in. I'm going to hand it into your capable hands and we'll just throw questions. We're freestyling today. So over to you. We love you both. Thanks hey, for coming on. Rowan Harm, it's amazing to be yes, back on with you. Fantastic. Hi to you both and hi to all the listeners as well. It's great great to be back. Hey, let's just kick off with the very idea that you put into our minds there, which is stress. And um, there is absolutely no doubt that the very first thing before you think about what you're going to put in your mouth or whether you're going to exercise or not, just think about how that stress is affecting you. And the reality right. is 
chronic stress. We are not adapted to deal with chronic stress day in, day out. If you're, you know, completely and utterly hooked your wagon to BBC News and you're <laughs> to the news daily. And obviously this is international, so yeah, other, and, other and, country and any, any stations. Any of the mainstream media stations. But, but hey, if you look at um, what's happening on, on, on YouTube and some of the other channels as well, it can be pretty scary. You're faced with all of this stuff. Not only is some of it scary, but the other challenge for so many people is there's so much conflict, there's so much polarization. What right. sense do you make of it? And when a human being has difficulty making sense of something, it will put them into this stressful situation. And we we probably touched on last time how this kind of manifests in the body and how the the, the central nervous system is linked directly to the immune system, which is linked directly to the neurological system and, and the hormonal system. It's all interconnected in this big super system. And if we keep playing to our sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight and flight side of our autonomic, that's the sort of subconscious part of our nervous system, it is pushing you consistently into this place where our immunity is upregulated. This is the fight and flight response, and which is meant to exist for that brief period of time when you're trying to escape from a saber-toothed tiger. But if we're in that all of the time, um, all of our stress hormones, our, our cortisol level gets upregulated, we end up not being able to break down or assimilate food when we're in a very stressed environment. We cannot remove the nutrients properly from our food. We need to be actually in a parasympathetic state, in the rest and digest state, not the fight and flight state, if we're to assimilate nutrients properly. If we can't take the nutrients out of our food properly, we cannot have the resources that our immune system needs. We also, our fat metabolism, our energy metabolism goes out of kilter. We start developing spare tires around our middle. As we build more and more fat around our middle, we start getting what we call talking fat. This is where you, your adipose tissue, your fat around your middle, starts sending out messengers that messages that dysregulate the way in which we deal with, with energy. So the whole thing begins a vicious spiral before you even consider the food that you put into your mind. So I'm going to... So I'm, just, just jumping in there quickly, just so... Uh, just to help people understand, what you're really saying is that we have evolved to be able to deal with that level of stress for short periods, whereas now it's continuous. The body's completely confused. It's not functioning because it closes certain things down under those stress situations. But if it's constantly under stress, those things are closed down fully Perfect. for long periods of time during and, the day. And we're looking at a 365 day stress right. situation. And yeah. social media from all angles. Mm. And we're 11 months into it, you know, 10, 11 months into it now. So it's really starting to pay a big toll on our physiology, our emotional health. And, and it's the thing that we need to address. I'm going to pass over to Mel now to talk us through, you know, what are the ways in which before we look at our food or our exercise, what are the ways in which we can start to transform stress I'll, I'll just give yeah. you this idea that that the way in which we perceive stress is what causes the problem so you've got two different people who are listening to the same news channels the same information who actually handle that stress in a very different way you can see it in an office situation where 
you've got certain individuals that thrive off a really stressful situation right causes other people to completely cave we must remember that it's down to our perception of stress and if you can understand that it's the way that you receive that information that can that actually turns it either into negative stress or positive stress positive stress is is the kind of adaptive transformative stress that we can address and a lot of it starts with the way in which you perceive those signals from the outside world so mel can you take us through that a bit so i i think that that is that's so true and one of the most important things that i wanted to say at the start of this for everyone about stress is that um we no matter what is happening in the external world we remain sovereign beings we nobody can tell you how to think we remain free in terms of our thoughts and our ability to um, create our world around us. One of the great teachers of this was Nelson Mandela, who was, you know, as you know, incarcerated for decades. And um, he used to talk about this a lot, how it took him some time, took him a number of years to realize that he was still a free being. And so, you know, we are, we are being incarcerated and in some countries, the incarceration is heavier than in other places. But um, I'd really, I know this is a subject of probably another podcast, but I'd like to just introduce the idea of how powerful we are as a collective consciousness. Yeah, And absolutely. how much this transforms our stress in really understanding that because of what's being thrown at you externally, you don't have to take that on board and make it your reality. Mm. You can... I love the term, um, observe, but don't absorb. Yeah. So, you know, if the news is on, um, if everything is happening around you, if your friends and family are all stressed and panic struck and, you know, talking about one particular reality, you still have the freedom. We all have the freedom to actually think another thought and to just observe what's happening, but we don't have to take it on board. I love that. This is a huge part of uh, my mindfulness practice in the fact that um, I do genuinely believe that by observing and by choosing something different, you actually take the power out of it. It no longer has the power. And imagine if we all did that as a collective. We are so powerful. We can shift worlds. We really can. So even if you're shifting your own individual world, just some, you know, breathing techniques, just some mindfulness, just a basic, does this resonate with me? Do I actually want to feel this way? And if the answer is no, then change it, you know, just let it go. So Mel, just jumping in there, years ago, there was a great phrase as well from Deepak Chopra that said, be a silent witness to the moment, which is very much about what you're saying. Yes. Someone listening to this saying, Mel, I get that, I really understand that sometimes it just feels like, how can I do that? How can I disassociate? How can I observe but not absorb it? It feels like it's just penetrating into every part of me. Is there any little subtle tricks that they can do, techniques that you have found for yourself or people that you've worked with that helps a quick instant disassociation, if you like? Um, the, yes. I mean, the the other thing that I learned a number of years back and I've used for myself and for, for clients is to just accept what is. You see, we, we create so much pressure and discomfort for ourselves by fighting against what is. We don't surrender enough. 
And, um, you know, if you just surrender to what is, it doesn't mean that you have to own it, become it, take it on board. You're just seeing it and accepting and then you're no longer fighting against it and you take all the pressure out. It allows you to turn your attention. You might not like it. And you know what? The other thing is if you do get triggered by something, if you do end up having a reaction, you know, we're all human and actually that energy and that emotion has got to come out of the body somewhere. True, true. So let it out, breathe it out, and then go and do something in nature. Mm. Walk on the grass with your bare feet. Do some breathing technique. Just look at a tree anything to just shift your attention. But I think yeah. um, surrendering to what is is also very powerful. Can, can I just pick up on that point? And, and as someone with a, with a background in ecology and, and everything we do at A&H is all about connection um, and particularly connection with nature, you know, don't underestimate how extraordinary nature is. And human beings are, are one species of a probably around about 6 million that inhabit this um, ball of rock that's flying around a star called the sun. And um, we, we sometimes get so lost in the human world mm. that we forget to marvel at the extraordinary elements of the non-human world that continue in glee. And we also can start to completely lose a sense of context about pieces of information that come in usually from radio waves or TV screens or computer screens that allow us to distance ourselves from the present moment and the extraordinary interaction that we can have still with our loved ones, with our families, with our friends. Um, whether that's direct or, or, or through a, a digital connection of some sort. But we, we somehow seem to lose perspective very easily because of the state of fear that this limited stream of information has caused. And, and so, you know, one of the greatest um, starting points for anyone who's engaging in mindfulness practice or meditation is understanding the value of the present moment. And it's when, so true. when you do that, it, it, it's really the starting point. And if you can couple being in the present moment with being in nature, you actually get a double whammy effect. It is quite extraordinary. Everyone I know who says, you know, I hadn't realized how much value I got from just going into the park and just studying the bark or the falling leaves in autumn, or, you know, the way in which the squirrel was moving and looking for its food and realizing that nature is a total mar marvel. We are part of it, have to get in touch with that. And, and lo and behold, even viruses are part of it. We cannot be here without viruses. Viruses are not some evil construct. They are part of a system that has allowed genetic material to be able to move from one organism to another. They are non-living entities. They don't have brains or central nervous systems. They go about their business and they are part of a system that natural living systems, whether you're plants, animals, microbes, use to, to move genetic information around. And as we said last time, it's all a bit messy when there's the introduction of a new virus to 
a given species, but it's it's already calming down. And if you if you just do look at the statistics that are going on now around COVID, you will see that the net harms that this virus is causing in society are a fraction of where they were in March or April. So that before we take a deeper dive into sort of science and stats and everything else, I just wanted to bring us back. Rob's given us a perfect segue into looking at how nature not only um, helps us to deal with our stress, but also getting out and walking in nature populates our microbiome as well, which has a huge effect on, um, on mental health. Because when you're out and you're walking in the forest, you are actually breathing in micro- microbes. You've got microbes landing on your skin. It helps us to repopulate our, our, our gut and our entire body's microbiome. So, you know, forest bathing, the Japanese were the first to coin the term, and they've been doing studies and been using forest bathing for, for really quite some time. I mean, I was studying it over 10 years ago, and it's now just starting to become a thing over here in the West where they're using it as lifestyle prescription for people, for mental health. And there, there, there is a, a body of science that actually shows how breathing in these microbes when you're out in nature, and particularly in the autumn when the rotting leaves and, uh, and you know, nature is breaking everything down before the spring, has a, has a huge effect on mental health. So absolutely, get out and populate your microbiome, deal with your, um, your stress, and support your immunity. That's incredible. And I just want to just loop back to something Rob said to give the listeners some context and just wondering if you both agree with this as well, which is when we are, the, almost the difference between nature and what we're seeing, and often what we're seeing out there is almost out of context, because if you pick up your phone, you log onto a social media application, all you're seeing is a headline. And that headline is often taken out of context or simply there just to grab your attention. So it's almost manufactured versus nature. You spoke about the leaves dropping from the trees. That is just nature taking its course. As you mentioned, the virus is entered into our sort of ecosystem and it is now taking the course. So I just wanted to frame that for listeners who maybe misunderstand the the, the difference between both those elements. But would that be fair to say, uh, and then just throwing the, the ball back in your guys' court, that there's almost a manufactured piece of context and information that's being sent out to us and almost just a small glimpse of that versus nature taking its course and is that one of the reasons why we feel so connected to one and are almost in flight or fight mode when being fed the other side of the information look it's absolutely the case the the we've got to remember that the way in which the media which is a construct of of really a capitalistic system that's originated from the idea of selling newspapers, it realized that people, first of all, respond more when there's a bad news story. That's why newspapers for decades have been filled with bad news, not with good news. Mm. And um, they they signal a reaction. And the, re- the, the original reaction was, was one of actually spending the money. I want to find out what risk there could be to me or I want to make myself feel better because there's an axe murderer somewhere else that's creating drama, and and that's you know we we we've had a, a life where we get off on on that kind of fiction, which is pretty unpleasant. What we're now seeing is a is a a world in which the bad news is impacting people 
you know, you can't you can't hide away from it. Back in mm. March or April, in much of the northern hemisphere, the sun was shining. Um, it was a perfect time for people to attempt this disconnect from their working lives to see if they could work from home. They could still catch some sun and feel like they're on holiday. We saw right. that, uh, you know, drinking rates increase. People were still kind of socializing. Mark two, lockdown mark two for, for much of the world is a different kettle of fish. We're now Absolutely. having to deal with the fact that for 10 months or so, people have been more disconnected from the life they knew. They are going into a winter. There is a sense of bleakness about it, yeah. but they're still feeding off the same information, the same signals that is coming through their social media channels, the BBC News and everything else. And um, yes, it, it, it is massively out of context. I think that the, the thing that people really struggle with and what is helpful to be able to do is to start to delineate in your rational mind, the frontal cortex of our brain is where we process reasoning and, and information to be able to create a sort of logical construct of, uh, of what we should do. When we are in a state of fear, we move back to our, our monkey brain, our midbrain, which is the side that, that you know hadn't evolved into this large frontal cortex that can deal with reason and complex information. When we're in that sort of midbrain monkey brain area, we're just we're locked into this place of, of fear the whole time. When you come back out of that, you've done your connection with nature, you've got into the present moment. Think for a minute how much of the stress or distress that you're engaged in is linked to the virus and what the virus does, and think how much of it is linked to the decisions that human beings have made ostensibly because of the virus. Mm. So most of the real economic, financial, social, and health harms that we see are actually linked to the human response to the virus and not the virus itself. Right. And that's we should... a really important sort of decision that we all need to make in our own minds. What it does is start to impart a greater sense of control of your own life and, yes. and to realize, you know, if we can within the present moment, within the decision, within the context of our individual lives, still have high quality relationships with our friends and our family to be able to, if you like, turn some of this information that is coming through these various channels, a little bit like water off a duck's back. This is what they're saying. I now understand that all these job losses and you know all all of the problems all of the mental health problems are largely a result of of people having been forced and seen no alternative but to do what mm. governments are asking them to do it kind of gives us it re-empowers us in our own lives and i think it's a really important differentiation we all need to make I think there's, there's, I mean, you've talked about families there as well. I think there's another fact that I've observed just generally across the board is that funnily enough, I was uh, picking up a coffee from a, a local cafe near us, which is like on an organic farm. And a gentleman was saying he's got to a point now, even with some of his friendships, where the stress levels have increased because of people's different opinion about the information they're being presented with. So even with families connecting, some agree with masks, disagree, agree with the stats, uh, you know, tests. So there's 
there's even that happening under the under the surface. And because people are distanced, there isn't that ability necessary to bridge that gap in a more relaxed way. So you're getting remote digital conversations where people are falling out disagreeing and that can create more stress as well. It's it's so true, Ro. And I think that we all need to now, those of those of us who have the ability to to sort of understand, you know, in, intention and energy and, and and how we can actually create our own reality. It's down to us to create less division. And this comes back to this concept of observe but don't absorb. And mm. I, I think that we need to find it within us to accept that people have got um, – very different parts of the story, depending on where their information portal is coming. And it may differ from yours and your feelings, but I think that we've really all got to sort of rise above and, you know, find it within ourselves to be in compassion and empathy and just be less divided. And and the challenge, of course, is that if you have a view, which I have, which is, well, I'm questioning a, a test result that somebody may have, how do I then articulate that? Because me being me will say, well, do you want to, you know, don't necessarily take that as literal because you do know that some of the stats, you could be tested three times in a week and it comes back with different results. And some people go, oh my gosh, let me look into that. Others kick back and say, what are you telling me? Uh, are you saying that I'm not ill? Or, and so it's... It, you're almost finding yourself navigating a conversation about your own set of beliefs about a set of circumstances which people have been so brainwashed with that they believe Absolutely. it literally. I, I listened to a podcast last night with an American doctor and um, he told of a case where there's a woman in America. Um, she was tested in one nostril and she was positive and she was tested, swabbed in the other nostril and she was and she was negative. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's ludicrous. <laughs> I, I think a lot of it is down to receptivity, you know, it, Nature works in that way. If you've got a, a, a particular chemical messenger molecule fl- floating around your body, it's it's trying to look for receptor sites that it recognizes to lock onto. And when it does, that connection is made, that particular biochemical reaction goes on. It's a little bit similar when we're dealing with people. So you meet someone who says, right, I've got a PCR test result. It was positive. There are some very, very clear facts around this. And, you know, this is comes to this question of um, trusted information. One of the things that we've seen very clear evidence of is that the so-called fact checker sites are not reliable. I mean, they, they, they're always locked in a kind of time warp that is designed to maintain the status quo. And they don't necessarily fit with the pattern of emerging, sometimes still uncertain science. But, you know, there is a, you know, if you go to authoritative information, which, you know, certainly on our website, we are always using primary source data. There's a very clear view on what the level of accuracy of a PCR test is going to be. And, you know, even people like the, the UK health minister, people like Matt Hancock, they seem to misunderstand what a sensitivity of a test is when they when they hear that a that that a particular test that they've just spent millions or billions on has mm-hmm. got a ninety six percent sensitivity. They assume that ninety six out of a hundred tests are going to be accurate, whereas the reality is that that's not what sensitivity means at all. Can I jump in and say? 
for our listeners, can we pick that up with you at the, towards the end of this? I'd like to actually, if you don't mind opening that conversation for anyone listening, this is a fascinating subject and I'd quite like us to tackle this before we finish the podcast. Are you okay with that? Absolutely. One thing, just going back to your question about, you know, what happens when you, you know, I, I'm with you. I also jump in and try and say to somebody, you, you know, yeah. and I, but, but if they don't want to accept it, I know. I just stop and accept it. And it's exactly. like, Sometimes you have to, yeah. They're not ready. They're not they're, ready. They're exactly. On a, yeah. On an earlier part of their journey. And right. I, the, the, often it's very useful to give them some information and then let them digest that. Yes. In their own time, not necessarily because we live in such a polarized society. True. We have a level of divisiveness that's so high to, to keep pushing on that polarization actually sometimes entrenches yeah. opinions in even more, you know, opposite manners. So it, it really I, has magnified those differences of values and beliefs within families as well, I think, yes. uh, and close knit groups, which again is another level of stress on what was a previously maybe a structure that people were used to is now being questioned. I mean, you've and, just, and had, then, you know, just had a baby and this for you has been a big subject. Uh, and one of the, unspoken things about here is one of the challenges that occurs is the opposite which is what we don't want is then nobody talks about yeah, it exactly. because they're scared yeah. of <laughs> triggering this so extreme egg, emotional response. conversations yeah. actual conversation actually guys let's not just talk about this at all yeah. and let it just happen to us and i think that's just as scary it means we're just almost muted knowing that we're going to face resistance either on the left side or the right side or front or back or whatever the situation yeah. is. So, so I think I'm just, because this could be easily the subject of this whole podcast, but I'm conscious that you've got a lot of other stuff to share. So let me navigate us through. So yeah. what we're saying is we're running into this storm and the first- Winter thing, storm. Winter storm. Yeah. And the first thing you said is, okay, pause, reflect, breathe, get centered, allow everything around you to slow down, all the listeners listening to this, and get set, become more conscious of your moment. And then now's the time to reflect on what do we put into our body? Because Rob and Mel stepped in to say, before we even get to what we put in our bodies, let's just go back to ourselves, look at our mind, let's slow things down, be, be mindful of the moment, don't allow the pressure to affect your actual reality. So what would be the next step in that calmness that we can talk about in terms of nutrition and, and what do we put into our bodies? Well, you know, the bottom line is we, we, we need to put in food into our bodies and we need to do that in a fairly considered way. If we are to have an immune system that is primed, the fascinating thing is that we have to deal with multiple systems. I, I, I talked about the way that, that our central nervous system, our immune system and our hormonal system are absolutely intimately connected. So, the bottom line is that all of us benefit. It's a kind of like a, 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 a you know, th th there's a multiple benefits in trying to, you know, improve your immune system. It does not mean just saying, hey, if I take a little bit of vitamin C, is that going to sort my immune system out? Vitamin C is a great thing to take, but actually the total resources and information that these three super systems, immune endocrine central nervous system require actually require a gamut of information and so our starting point is to say right food isn't fuel um, actually food contains energy carriers rather than fuel itself and and we call them energy carriers because a bunch of biochemical reactions need to occur in order to 
get the energy out of the system. Our bodies use a thing called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. That is the fuel. Um, glucose, carbohydrate is not the fuel. It is purely an energy carrier, and our body can actually right. use four right. different fuels. It can use um, carbohydrates, it can use proteins, it can use fats, and it can use ketones. So what what we really emphasize, and it's fascinating when you look at the 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 groups of people, the subpopulations in society that are most impacted by severe COVID disease, they're all people who have problems with basically the physiology uh, and metabolism. They're people who are prone to metabolic diseases, whether it's heart disease, um, cancer, uh, diabetes, obesity. Um, there are also older people who are often have a much higher chance of having those kinds of underlying conditions. But on top of that, they are facing an age-related decay of the function of these systems, particularly of, of their immune system. So they become what we call immunocompromised or immunodeficient. And that's not to say that they can't also do things that in, in effect, turn them into a younger version of themselves by putting the resources that these systems require. So we talked about the, the idea of, um, you know, from a stress point of view, it's definitely observe and don't absorb. When it comes to food, it's actually all about what you observe then you, you digest and then what you absorb Fantastic. Brilliant. So it's, the exact, it's the exact That's opposite, a very, very smooth, yeah. smooth yeah. transition there. I like so, that. Because so many people are not absorbing their food. Now, one of the things that I mentioned at the start is, is the relationship between the assimilation of that food and your state of stress. You cannot do it. So this idea of, you know, for... for eons we've understood that if we sit in social groups around a fire and of course we have proxies for that in this modern world things like candles or lower light or pleasant music um, if we are in that kind of environment rather than you know as as mel calls it aldesco eating rather than alfresco eating <laughs> if we're if we're eating our food and the news is on and we're hearing about mortality rates or hospitalization rates of, of, of COVID, my God, you are not going to be able to assimilate those nutrients. So, so think about food not as a source of calories, but as basically a source of information. And Rob, can I sort of interject? Because as you're talking, certain things flash up. Whilst you're there, then can you talk to the just briefly to the conversation about where people have uh, computers, phones, iPads at the dinner table? From what you've just said there, there's an immediate thought in my head. Well, surely if that's the case, then what you're saying is that could have an effect. They're eating, but they're actually looking at their phone, reading bad news. Whatever they're eating nutritionally is not even. You've got to put the thing down. You have to have um, digital free space. You know, digital detox time. You know, the, the, the two really crucial times for your state of health, physiological and emotional health, are at mealtimes. And the other critical time is an hour or two before bed. And our overuse of those technologies, and as we move into a world, I mean, the if you look at Klaus Schwab's vision of the, he's the guy who heads up the World Economic Forum, that's, that's really the master controller in the system that we're going through at the moment 
looking at the fourth industrial revolution, digital technologies, the internet of things, are going to become more part of our lives, not less part of our lives. So, um, you know, really important to look at the work of people like Tristan Harris, the guy who put together the Social Dilemma film on Netflix. People are yes, yeah. Really important to see it because we need now to really understand how we can use digital technology safely. And as I said, do not have them running at mealtime. Do not have them running within an hour or two of going to bed. And because, of course, it pulls you straight out of the present moment. You cannot be in the present moment when you eat your meal if you're focused um, on a digital device or even the television. Yeah, yeah, you know, so which, which has become a norm for so many people. Exactly. The, the next thing to, to really understand once you've taken the digital tech out of your meal times and you've understood that food is information, the next thing is to understand where does that food come from? And it's really important to recognize that, that it is essentially the most intimate way in which we experience the external environment. We, we have this tube that runs from our mouth through to our backsides that is really part of the external world and it is interfaced by this extraordinary community of commensal microorganisms that Mel's talked to, that we repopulate when we eat fermented foods. We repopulate pretty much when we eat all foods other than when we eat really heavily sterilized, ready-made meals and you know packeted foods, which are sterilized so they, they can increase the shelf life. And if we take antibiotics on top of that, we sterilize our entire digestive tract but so this is a sort of this is the the interface between the external world and the interior world and it has a phenomenal amount of intelligence to it we, we should also understand that our interaction with the 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 gaseous world the 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 atmosphere that we live in is obviously through our lungs so again we've got this amazing um, mucosal layer through our nasopharyngeal system that they're being tested all the time with PCR tests, whether we have or haven't got SARS-CoV-2. And that also has its whole immune system and its own intelligence that responds to the external environment. Now, one of the reasons, say, coming back to, to COVID, that kids have much less problems with with SARS-CoV-2 than than, uh, adults is because they come into this world with a pretty bristling innate immune system because they haven't developed in time their adaptive or cell-mediated immune system with all the B cells and the T cells that that requires time and exposure. That's why, you know, it's really important that kids run around and spend time outdoors exposing themselves to all sorts of bugs. That's how Historically, we've built up the cell-mediated immune system. And of course, nowadays, people say, well, it's okay to live in a really hermetically antiseptic treated environment. We'll just vaccinate the kids. But this is just a, a surrogate for what happens naturally. And of course, within those vaccines, there may or may not be other things that, that people respond to. But I think there is a, a this this you're right actually there's a there's a fear within parents the kids go out they get dirty they get their hands muddy they come in what have you done uh, which which is challenging because the reality is that that's what they need to be doing I mean we, we grow up as you know in an area where everybody's hands on it's very organic it's just mud everywhere yeah. it's just mud everywhere the kids love it and Amazing. we encourage them to do that 
but there is a different school of thought, which is no, no, keep them clean. Everything has to be sterilized. No dirty hands. It's so important to not sterilize and to also not use all the anti-back products, you know, on your surfaces and everything at home. Um, you want to have pets around. You want to have real life. We we've grown up. These are these are friends, not foes. These microbes, and you know, there are old friends that have seen us through the whole of evolution. We we absolutely need them. Nice way and of the, the other the other side, obviously, that Rob's talking to in terms of assimilation is that um, you really need your gut to be functioning in a very optimal state. And I think that people have got so used to living with gut um, discomfort that they think it's normal. And so, you know, any bloating or wind or pain or discomfort or heartburn, these are all red flags from your body telling you that your digestive tract is not functioning optimally. It's not something that should be lived with. And certainly if you get a lot of heartburn, um, the worst thing you can do for yourself is pop lots of antacids or PPI inhibitors. Hmm. And this, you know, this is such a common thing today. And as a practitioner, this is the first thing that we do is we make sure that we get the gut back into order again. Then, you know, the information that you are taking in from your food, you'll be able to assimilate and absorb again. And you'll also be sealing your gut because, you know, as Rob mentioned, that tube that goes from mouth to exit needs to be sealed. It shouldn't be like a tea bag. If you've got a tea bag gut, you're going to be leaking out those microbes into your um, body cavity. And right. that is going to be triggering the big guns of your immune system because they're not meant to be there, which then starts off low grade inflammation. And that is the basis for all chronic disease. So, so would this be a, a sort of a next step in terms of people staging through this urge? And what could they be looking at? Could they be look, what could they be starting to take or change in terms of their diet at this stage? And 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 just you, before I, you I, answer I, that, yeah. is if you add to you know the whole gut sort of explanation Mel's given us there, if we add to that the other things that we've got used to, which is you know lack of sleep, walking right. around like zombies, and oh that must be the norm, uh, just <laughs> yeah. feeling t- fatigued all the time. Oh well, that must be the norm. You know, it's it's going back to the the warnings that they give us. You know, so how many people continue to brush their teeth with bleeding gums and they don't take that seriously? Oh, that must just be the norm. There's all of these things stacked on top of each other, which we just sort of take for granted and we just live with, I guess. Hmm. And that's something that's just jumping out of me, you know, based on what Mel's just described there. But yes, please loop back to absolutely almost what can somebody do? I think that's what Ro was pointing out. All of those things, Harm, that you describe are a move away from resilience. They are they right. your loss of resilience. Hmm. And we're gonna carry on and we'll talk quite a bit about that in this in this in this podcast is the fact that, you know, just like you get a fresh rubber band that will always spring back into shape. You can stretch it, you can flex it, and it will come back again. When when that rubber band loses resilience, it snaps. Mm. And that's exactly mm. what happens to our health at every level. You know, not just your immune system, but physically, mentally, emotionally, at, at, at every at every level. And so the work that we do, we are really concentrated on using food as information, particularly as a first step to restore and reset your resilience. 
So, the, so on the gut, it's useful to think of, uh, you know, the, the, what we call the three R's. So you remove, replace, and repair. So you've got to take the stuff out of the diet that's causing problems. Now, that may be anything from, from junk food, um, very heavily damaged foods from excess heat, um, frying where you're creating a whole bunch of carcinogens in them. But it also may be allergens, the, the fact that there are only 14 legal allergens. And, um, you know, two of those are the mainstay of the Western diet. They include gluten and dairy. And if you do suffer from any kind of a bloating reaction from eating, that isn't normal. You, you, are, you should feel that, very, very that's good. Inflammation. That, that is right. inflammation. If you're doing that repeatedly, it's going to turn into systemic um, inflammation. So it's, take the stuff out that, that's harmful and, uh, so, so a message for all listeners, it's not the norm. It's <laughs> okay, not the start norm. Start bloating. Yeah, absolutely not the norm. If, if you're feeling any kind of discomfort post-eating, that is not what we yeah. should be feeling. If you get a food baby, it's not normal. <laughs> so then, then you want to look at what you're replacing it with. And, you know, there are a few golden rules around replacement. I, I, one of the ones that, that really hasn't captured the imagination of, of people yet is – and, and it's because it hasn't been publicized sufficiently, but your plants have got to be grown in the soil. You know, most people think they are. So they go to the supermarket and they see all these bags of salad and vegetable there, not realizing that the majority of these pre-packaged, pre-prepared vegetables and even fruits are grown in hydroponic solutions. So they're grown in, in basically a water medium with something that's a little bit similar to a centrum vitamin and mineral tablet running around that gives it um, the nutrients that allows it to barely survive. But just like a, uh, you know, a child comes into this world with a, with a, with a quite a lot of intrinsic vigor, a, a seed, one of the reasons you can sprout seeds with no nutrients at all is because there's, there's nutrition in that, same as a chicken egg. There's all that nutrition there and there's this, this vigor that, that occurs in all young organisms that we lose it in life if we don't have the right resources around us. So we really need to have soil-grown food. Um, you know, obviously, organic certification is a simple way of doing that. But right. There's a lot of other um, foods out there that are not organically certified. We're beginning to see in agriculture this move towards um understanding what regenerative agriculture is. And it doesn't necessarily mean that any regenerative agricultural system is built around the soil. And the soil is precisely the same kind of environment for a plant as our gut is for a human. And, and the microbial component of that is essential for growing healthy plants that contain everything we need in them. It's one of the reasons that so many of those salad bags have just got baby leaves. If you try to grow them through to maturity, they would start to etiolate, they'd start to become sort of yellow and flimsy and floppy. And if you eat, you know, salad that comes out of the soil, you will find it has a very different texture. It has yeah. a and taste. stronger and taste, flavor. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, the obvious question for somebody listening is, okay, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily getting access to organic food all the time. I mean, we're very privileged to be in that position, but what, how can they identify whether food's been soil 
grown outside of seeing the bag with mud all over the carrots. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the bottom line is we all need to be putting pressure on suppliers to tell us if, right. if it's going to be sole grown. And, and I should say at this point, it is only next year in Europe that IFERM, the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements that controls the Soil Association, all the national associations, is going to put their foot down and reverse the decision that has allowed hydroponic to be organically certified. So as of 2021, that will revert. And that is because the science around the importance of the soil microbiome, we call it also the rhizosphere, is now so overwhelming that they cannot, you know, the big producers who jumped on the organic bandwagon said, hey, we'll just do our organic agriculture for the big producers was seen pretty much like a free from agriculture system. We'll, we'll just meet the limited requirements and we won't right. spray, yeah. we won't put synthetic fertilizers or pesticides into it. Now, fortunately, organics going back to its roots, excuse the pun, and saying, hey, <laughs> yeah. we need to grow this stuff in soil again. Um, because we cannot have a proper nutrient cycling people. We can't either grow healthy plants, nor can we grow healthy people unless the stuff is in the soil. And, you know, let's remember that plants, they're, they're really, they're, there's a whole movement in, in science developing, looking at plants as slow animals. We have many, many more similarities to plants than we thought as animals. Um, and one of the most overt differences is the way in which our intelligence is actually delineated within a plant. So, you know, the plants don't have central nervous system, but boy, they are fully sentient. They feel, they communicate. Yeah, I mean, th those are among some of the really obvious things that they do. And their communication system both occurs from the release of highly volatile compounds into the atmosphere that allows them to signal to other plants if they're in a good space or a bad space, yeah. whether they need to upregulate their immune defenses or not. But they also communicate through their root systems via fungal mycelia. So the, these are fungi that exist. So when we grow plants in a really intensive agricultural system and we um, use a bunch of fungicides that typically are less toxic to humans and animals because they're designed to hit fungi we actually wipe out all those microbes that the plants need to communicate with each other so that they can build their own immune resilience not only that one of the reasons that there is a big movement globally to really shine a spotlight on the world's number one herbicide glyphosate is because glyphosate does the same thing it wipes out the, the um, microbial communities in the soil oh can't, can't grow healthily. So we, you know, we have a real crisis in agriculture. We've got a really, because it's the most intimate way that we experience the external environment, it is really important, not only from where you derive your food, it's really also important to understand what you do with that food once it comes into your home. And, and recognizing that you know, the, the, the broccoli that you buy in a cellophane, you know, shrink wrap is not going to be the same broccoli that it was when it was first harvested, nor is it going to be the same broccoli if you consume it a week after right. you put it in the bottom drawer of your refrigerator. It is in a continuous state of flux. And, 
you know, the concept of, you know, the few we've talked about, you know, remove, uh, replace and repair for the gut. Some of the basic concepts that we really need to be aware of our, of our food is to soil grown is one of them. Color is another to get a diverse range of colors into your diet because each one of those colors contains with it a whole array of phytochemicals, phytonutrients that are the information that our bodies need. And the third thing is, is you know, what kind of damage do we do to the food when we cook it? Sometimes by applying heat to it, we actually enhance the ability to assimilate nutrients. So the great example there is the, the carotenoids in brightly, particularly orange and yellow colored um, vegetables and, and tomatoes, etc., that we actually absorb better when heat has been applied. Um, but in other cases, particularly if we apply too much heat, we start breaking some of these nutrients down. So we've got to be thinking, you know, and, and that applies to proteins as well. You know, we one of the reasons that, that there is so much negativity around red meat um, seems to be not because red meat is intrinsically harmful. What is harmful is the industrial farming production systems that produce red meat that is already damaged when it comes out of the highly stressed animal that, that has provided it. Um, but then on top of that, cheap red meats are often treated and, 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 and cooked in ways that actually create a whole bunch of additional carcinogens um, because of the application of, of heat. So it produces these vast numbers of heterocyclic amines and polyaromatic hydrocarbons, all big words, but basically they're not very good for us. And we you know, haven't adapted to eat large quantities of damaged food out of these kind of industrial production systems. This is fascinating. What well, is it fair to say, and I'm one of the lucky ones who've received this ebook extremely early, which is, for those that don't know, Rob and Mel have, I think amongst other creators, have put together a, a mega ebook, which is a guide for health. Is it fair to say, Rob, that what you're talking about here is also included in there with some more depth, uh, some pointers, uh, because I'm yet to open the book and explore it. That's going to be my weekend read. But for those who are listening, uh, your food for health guide for resilience, what we're talking about today. Yeah, because I I know already as as I'm listening to Rob, people are like, okay, what colors, what foods, what should I be jumping into? How long should I get for All of those kind of questions are flowing. It's all in there, there, guys. I mean, one of the, one of the things um, we are, you can obviously hear, we are so passionate about um, the body and health and food as well. We're real foodies here. And so we could see that, you know, people's health is literally running into a brick wall because of the public health messaging and the government messaging on foods. I mean, every every, um, every government plate that we looked at, their guidelines, food guidelines in the UK, it's the Eat Well Guide in America. It's um, my it's my plate. Um, and I think um, pretty much the Southern Hemisphere runs a lot off the US plate. They... It, as far as we're concerned, we call them diabetes plates because for people 
who have got a tendency towards um, metabolic distress and dysfunction, it's going to get you into that place quicker than anything else. So back in 2015, we actually released our own guidelines and we call them Food for Health. And you can go onto our website and you can click on the Food for Health campaign and you can have a look at tons of articles. You can look at the plates. There is an adult plate an adult guide, there is a vegan guide, and there's also guidelines for children. And I kind of got, say, plate in inverted commas because we've done it with real foods so that you can look at what your plate, which is really represents your day's eating, um, should look like. And the first thing that you will see when you click on one of those is that it is heavily plant-based. And I'd really like to say that you can still have a heavily plant-based diet but be a flexitarian or be an omnivore. and uh, But you can be a vegan or a vegetarian as well. So all the information's there. And it's just taken, we've, we've done some refinements as the years have gone on. I mean, it was it's been based in a huge body of very up-to-date nutrition research, as well as clinical experience, as well as experience, you know, from, from individuals as well. So the benefit is that you can do what you want with those guidelines. So you can keep a very flexitarian, um, more sort of standard way of eating, if you like, with three meals a day. But you can also tweak it so that you can move into a more keto-adapted place. And, you know, Rob talked about the three R's. I'd like to add the last one is um, re-inoculate. So in removing the foods that are doing you harm and you will know what those are because you will have a response like bloating or discomfort or uh, or burping or heartburn after you've eaten them. And I'd like to just mention here a little bit more about um, about gluten because this is such a this is such a big one for people because it's in everything and it's also been labelled to be one of the biggest fad diets out there. But in removing gluten most people well in fact i can't tell you that i've had a client who has said that they have been worse off by removing gluten and the the reason for that is that gluten has got a series of um, proteins within it that one of them is called zonulin you don't have to remember what it's called but um, this protein mimics what we um, sorry, the, the gliadin mimics zonulin. Zonulin is what we have in our tight junctions inside our inside our gut mucosa. So this sealed tube from mouth to exit is not meant to be like a tea bag, but it has to have the ability of becoming a tea bag if you were to eat a pathogen that the immune system within your gut couldn't deal with. Right. So our body has a protein that it releases, which opens the doors basically. So the immune system can come in from the body and can help deal with it. So when you've got food poisoning, it's one of the reasons why you have a whole body experience and you ache and you feel like your bones are hurting because your entire immune system is now responding to that pathogen. Okay. What gluten does is it mimics that that action and it opens the tight junctions. So if you end up eating gluten three meals a day and two snacks – you basically are keeping your gut artificially open constantly. 
which is going to drive low-grade inflammation. And we and this is the, this is the reason why gluten is indicated in so many autoimmune conditions. And it's because you're you're basically driving inflammation because you have contents of the gut with microbes traveling out into the body cavity, which is going to make the immune system respond because that's you know a survival mechanism. It's what it's meant to do. So by removing gluten, you already enable your gut to be a lot more protected. And you know one of the We've only had grains in our diet for about 10,000 years. And the old grains, like spelt, had a different gluten content to some of the new grains in, the, in, the, in today's foods, which is why you have a way bigger response, negative response to some of the, um, the, you know, the breads um, that you can buy, particularly the, the, you know, the white bread that's come in the, the silver packaging um, for, you know, seven days freshness. I mean, that's hardly been through any fermentation process at all. But you take um, a properly fermented sourdough made with spelt and you've A, started off with less gluten, but you've B, managed to, you know, the bugs have basically eaten what's left of it. And a proper ferment um, for a sourdough should be 24 hours. Um, whereas most breads on the main sort of production process are only are only now fermented for eight hours. So there are ways around this if you're really passionate and you don't have an autoimmune condition and you don't have uh, raised antibodies to gluten, then, you know, by all means, source a sourdough and, and, and enjoy your bread in that way. So we've kind of We've removed the foods uh, that are a problem. We've replaced them with loads of great stuff. You can see that all on our um, food for health guides. And then we have repaired the gut. You've re-inoculated with microbes through fermented foods, through walking in nature. And you can already see that you're going to start to create way more resilience in the body. And yes, there's a kind of a long way around to say that we have finally managed to produce an ebook that expands on all of this and sort of tells you all of this and gives you the the basis for how we live our lives the way we eat um, it's the way I practice as a practitioner and you can also use these guidelines to go keto as well everything that's just been discussed there in around to where we can point listeners to get hold of this ebook is when it's officially available. We will link it up on the show notes okay, and the great. listeners know that at cicardo.com. So the show notes for this particular episode, any resource that is mentioned by Robert Mel, including their main website will be linked up on the show notes. So no problem there. So it's already, so it's available. It's in the web shop that's, um, that's on our website. So anhinternational.org, you can just click on the shop, shop icon. And I think it's the first thing in the basket. Um, you'll also see in there a few um, a few other things. Particularly, there are four video presentation packages in there as well of talks that um, Rob and I have given this year. And I and I'm only mentioning it now because actually it touches on quite a lot. Um, I've I've spoken about autoimmune disease and um, and also the thyroid um, and how to use food to basically help you overcome um, thyroid problems. But Rob has done a great presentation um, on the gut and the whole gut-brain connection and, um, and also about going keto as well. So, Fantastic. Um, there, you know, there's videos in there, but there's the ebook book in, in, in there as well in, in the shop on our website. 
the, the whole conversation about gut again almost war- warrants a, a podcast on its own. But I know people often look for uh, sort of supplements, etc. Are there any guidelines on yay or nay there? Anything specific they should be looking for? And, and this is also a good time to loop back to recommended daily allowance because that's always tagged on a supplement, or, or that'd be worth clarifying because I still don't understand what that means on the back of a package. Yeah. <laughs> So look, guys, the, f- the first thing is, is to understand that when you consume whole foods, whole plant foods, they don't come with a nutritional information label. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that we do encourage people to do from time to time, um, probably a minimum of a month a year is a good starting point, is to try going barcode free for a month. Because, you know, people can become so obsessed with nutritional labels that they forget that every time they buy a product with a nutritional label, it is likely to have been produced in a factory. It may be more processed. And you'll see again from our Food for Health guide that we're really recommending that the majority of food that people are eating is actually unprocessed or minimally processed. So again, another really important take home is maximize the amount of home prepared food that you're consuming. This is a good side of what's been happening with lockdown. There's a lot more people doing a lot more food preparation. And um, enjoying it, yeah. being in the kitchen. So, so exactly, yeah. Britain, being involved with the preparation of it. Yeah. Britain, if you look at international data, Britain has had one of the highest eating out rates of any country in the world. I mean, the US mm. is higher, but, mm. but certainly in Europe, one of the highest rates in Europe. Um, you compare it with with Eastern Europe or, or Southern Europe, you know where where you see um, less metabolic disease, higher levels of health. There seems to be some very tight correlations going on with the degree of home cooking and cooking from scratch. That's a really really important thing to do. So, coming back to to what the body needs. Remember, it's information within that information. One of the useful ideas is to remember that you you can divide your food between what we call macronutrients things that we need a lot of like carbohydrates fats protein um, and water and micronutrients things that we need a little bit of and when you look at the macronutrients understand that only three of those if we're going to include water as one of them only the protein and the fats are essential Okay, so in terms of nutrition, we, you know, at the moment, the government guidelines typically recommend that half of all the energy that we consume from our food comes from carbohydrates, when in fact, scientifically, we know that actually people do absolutely fine on zero carbohydrate. We, we, we still know there's plenty of pathways. We've got glucose transporters in our system that are really important in terms of um, how we deal with energy metabolism, but lo and behold, um, our liver can produce the amount of glucose that we need through a process called gluconeogenesis. So um, when we look at essentiality of nutrients, by definition, what essentiality means, an essential nutrient is something that we need to get in from the outside world that our bodies can't produce. So because we can produce glucose, carbohydrate isn't one of those. Um, What we live in, in terms of macronutrients, is a world in which we have been told 
we've got to reduce the amount of fat that we're consuming. Over the last five years in particular, that evidence has been systematically deconstructed. And it turns out that the problem we've had with fat is to do with the nature, the quality of the fats that we're eating. We're often eating damaged fats. We're often eating a lot of highly processed um so-called vegetable oils that are not really taken from vegetables at all. They're taken from, from seeds and then they're highly processed and exposed to very, very high temperatures. And obviously they're viewed as good for cooking when you take so the sunflower oil is viewed as good for cooking because it has a, a high smoke point. So just on that note then, just somebody listening who doesn't understand the contrast to that, what would be a good fat they could introduce to at least... Well, the, 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 those, we don't know what's on their shop okay. in their so kitchens those, at the moment. Those bad fats um, are, are damaged fats that are very rich in omega six fatty acids. Now we do need some omega six fatty acids, but what what's happened is that the balance between omega six and omega three essential fatty acids has become completely distorted because of our overconsumption of these highly refined seed oils that includes things like margarine. You know, it was no great surprise that the company that invented margarine through the Lever Brothers, you know, back in the 1920s, 1930s, that then developed all these margarine products has a couple of years ago ditched its entire margarine business because it sees no future in in that whole industry. So um, we, we, we know that from an evolutionary point of view, we many... Um, uh, nomadic peoples actually existed with a very close to a one-to-one ratio between omega-6 and, and omega-3. Um, we also know from research that a ratio of four to one, omega-6 to omega-3, is about the as far as we should go. And we also know that in most Western industrial society, the ratio is somewhere between 16 and 22 times the amount of omega-6 to omega-3. So we've got this way out of balance. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you just ramp up the amount of omega-3 that you get. That's actually very difficult to get balanced omega-3 if you're not taking fish oils. You can take flaxseed oil and get some of it, but you still need to go through a conversion process that some people don't do very efficiently if you want to um, particularly produce the amount of EPA and DHA. When we're young, we particularly need the um, essential fatty acid DHA for brain develop- de- development. As we get older, particularly to reduce the risk of heart disease, we, we need more EPA. So trying to get balanced omega-3s is good. But a simple way of doing it is saying, okay, let's reduce the amount of these cheap, vegetable oils as far as i'm concerned they don't exist in my kitchen what 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 i have in place is plenty of mono unsaturated fats okay mm-hmm. so we have um what i always do is use an a cold pressed unfiltered olive oil as my go to yeah. olive oil for that i don't apply heat to that i use as the basis for salad dressings and then i've got a slightly less expensive, still extra virgin olive oil um, that is is my olive oil that I use that I can apply heat to. It's it's a bit of a misconception that you can't apply heat to 
olive oil. The people in the Mediterranean have been doing that for for centuries. Um, what you shouldn't do to any food is fry the hell out of it. You know, this deep frying idea of of all your foods is 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 really not not a good idea. But this the other thing you do is is start to introduce a diversity of other fats. Um, the ones I think are very useful to have in your kitchen are um, avocado oil. It's a really good go-to oil that's also got a, a better smoke point than, than olive oil. And then, you know, if you're going to use a slightly higher temperature, particularly when you're cooking more in the Asian kind of dishes, which for me is a very much a go-to area for cooking, um, I will always have plentiful supply of a saturated fat that comes in the form of coconut oil that obviously solidifies in the colder period of year can be liquid in the in the heat now that is a saturated fat that is very rich in what we call medium chain triglycerides so these are really important fats that don't behave in the same way that um, heavily damaged saturated fats that you get in processed foods behave they are able to be used directly in your energy factories your mitochondria and your muscle cells that actually produce the atp that your body runs on they can use it directly from this from this fat but about so about 50 percent of your um virgin coconut oil um and you you can now buy you know even an organic form that i'd strongly recommended you can because the non-organic forms have often got residues of hexane which is a carcinogen in them so go for the organic if you can basically 50 percent of it will be a uh, will be lauric acid so a c12 fatty acid not the c8 c10 that are the mct ones the medium chain triglycerides that feed that provide fuel to the body and um and lauric acid is really important for inflammation. So once you start to, you know, reduce those seed oils and you increase these healthy fats, and remember that in terms of the energy content of fats, you get, you know, nine calories for every gram for fats, as opposed to only four from protein and carbs, you start to sort of change the the the, the energy balance. But it's in the end, it's all about quality. So even when you look at your proteins, you know, what is the quality of the proteins? If you're using animal proteins, where do they come from? Um, how are the animals treated? Uh, what kind of stress have the animals been on? What kind of diets have they been on? This idea of feeding animals foods that are alien to them. You know, most of the food that goes into animal feed for non-organic production systems, for industrial farming systems, actually comes from soya and maize that isn't the indigenous food for these animals. Yeah. Um, and they're also often highly stressed and very... So, so some of the research that points to um, even the greenhouse impacts of, of animal farming systems often just looks at those in intensive animal production systems. Um, people don't necessarily realize that the the Welsh lamb farming system and the Scottish Aberdeen Angus beef farming systems are already today carbon neutral because you've got to take into account the entire system in which those animals are living. 
So you're looking at all the oxygen that's being produced from the, the pasture that's in rotation. You're looking at the nutrient cycling that's occurring because the animals are pooping over that land and all of those. You know, you actually need animals within a system in order to allow complete nutrient cycling. So, yeah, that's, that's just your macronutrients before you then move on to your micronutrients. and that, um, That's amazing. Uh, the listeners would have heard me uh, in the background whispering to Ro ebook, uh, just saying, I'm excited to read the ebook uh, because this is just, uh, it's almost uh, like a, uh, a prequel to actually well, understanding the depth of this. And when I open up the ebook, I know you guys sent it earlier to me as a gift. I, I just there's a amount of pages and the amount of detail included is incredible. But even here, just the practical side of going into your kitchen and seeing, like you talked about the cold press unfiltered yeah. uh, olive oil. That if I walk into our kitchen, we've got these all stacked up, and even the kids now are aware of how and when to use them. And it's re-educating ourselves, isn't it, about these things on a practical? It might seem like a lot of information as people are listening, but if you filter, literally filter it down, if you filter <laughs> down, it's it becomes a set of go-to things that you, you just learn to cook differently. You, with. Just, you, mm. you, you change your kitchen and um, That's right. there is a section in the book about, you know, your shopping trolley and changing oh, your nice. trolley. And so I just wanted to come back before, because I know we, we could speak about food all day. And I wanted to just say two things. So the first thing is, I know we just told you about this one, this one ebook, which has kind of got everything in it. But if we've got any vegans listening, um, thinking, well, you've talked a lot about, you know, meat and flexitarian and everything. We have looked after you in this book, but we have, we are pretty much through our second ebook, which is all about how to be a really healthy vegan. Fantastic. And it's all for, it's all about, um, it's all about that because again, um, maybe you'll have been thinking if you're vegan, some of the things that we've talked about in terms of all the processed foods and obviously the amount of like meat and very processed foods that exactly. are coming onto the vegan market. Um, you know, the body, your body does not know what to do with these. Our bodies cannot recognize them as food. They're, te they're, te they're technological things and it's very hard to assimilate. And, you know, the information that that is bringing into the system um, you know, some people are just not absorbing and dealing with that very well. So, you know, we're going to deal with these things in, in the vegan book and just help you to kind of get back on track and, you know, maintain your health. And so, Harms, um, you, you're going back to your question where you asked about supplements. And so dietary supplements, if you're in the States or food supplements, if you're over in Europe, they are concentrated sources of nutrients and they are a category still of food. So, you know, as a practitioner, there are definitely instances when I will use supplements to enhance somebody's diet. It's always food first, get the kitchen sorted, get your relationship to cooking and handling and, you know, finding that love again for, for food because of what it's going to do for you. Because when you, when you love the process from the shopping to the choosing to the storage to the putting it in your kitchen to taking it out and cooking it all of that love energy is imbued in the food and you eat it so you know again you you change um, the type of energy that you're taking into your body but there are times when you do need to increase um, certain nutrients and um, and so 
definitely supplements are very necessary and you know they're your micro you know micronutrients um obviously i if i'm working with a client i do run functional tests so that i can actually see um where i might need to use extra things but does winter um, play a factor into this as well as we come into winter winter? plays a factor and one of the things i'd say is that um just so rda stands for recommended daily allowance and um i think it was 2016 that we made a shift in europe to um, changing that terminology and calling them nutrient reference values. So you'll have seen two things on packages. If it's a food, you'll see RI, which is um, reference reference intake. And if it's a food or a dietary, a dietary supplement, you will see NRV. They mean the same thing. And, you know, basically the RDAs or the NRVs are the lowest amount of that nutrient that you need to keep you out of serious um, deficiency pathology. But it's not enough for health. So that's why... What are they based on, Mel? I mean, who's made that decision? Well, they're committees. They're, they're public <laughs> public health committees that... Um, big, that <laughs> big pharmaceutical... No, yeah. no, because, <laughs> because they... You see, this comes back to the discussion around essential nutrients. So you only have NRVs around essential nutrients you don't have them for so-called conditionally essential or non-essential nutrients Um, so essential nutrients are those that the body doesn't produce the reason that we know that we need them is that in subpopulations that don't consume them they get really really sick so they get you know rickets in the case of vitamin d they get scurvy in the case of vitamin c so we know the threshold at which that deficiency disease occurs and there's been a lot of science, uh, you know, ever since. If we look at something like zinc, that's really important for the immune system. Um, it was, uh, you know, Dr. Ananda um, Prasad, um, who we know very well, is also a fellow of the American College of Nutrition that I'm a fellow of. Um, and we see him in the days when we used to have conferences at the annual conventions, the American College of Nutrition. But it was 1966 it wasn't until 1966 that it was realized and and he was the scientist that that persuaded the scientific community that these 300 different enzymes many of which are involved with the immune system are directly require that zinc is there so they've got these zinc ionophores that that it's one of the reasons that hydroxychloroquine seems to give better outcomes for covid because it helps shunt zinc into cells so it's just been a process of discovery, of learning what happens when we have certain things missing. The irony of it all is that most of the heart disease and metabolic disease and even cancer that we see in our society today that's crippling healthcare systems is not a result of deficiencies in essential nutrients. It's actually a deficiency in a category of nutrients that are loosely referred to as non-essential nutrients. All that means is things that don't create these overt deficiency diseases when we're short of it, but actually contribute to loads of disease later on in life when we all start getting sick. And that includes every single phytonutrient, all these phytochemicals that we said, the polyphenols and other things that our gut microbiota need and that we need to Um, talk to all these different metabolic processes that control energy use all of them require information from these plant nutrients 
which is why human beings don't do so well if you completely remove plant foods from from the diet. Why there's a very consistent body of evidence that says plant-based diets is what we really need for, for good health because that's essential. You know, it's essential for long-term health, but in the very narrow context of the way we think about essentiality. Um, so that really is the reason why these NRVs, these NRVs have come out of years of research for the levels required to stop deficiency diseases. We're still on a journey in nutritional science, understanding the levels that we need to stop long-term disease happening. And more than that, what we need to really have loads of vitality and loads of energy. Um, because of the way that research works, we actually spend, unfortunately, way too much time thinking about and studying disease processes, and we don't spend enough time thinking about studying really healthy people. So right. it's only when we start to really study healthy people and understand more about the physiology and metabolism around function, what actually really allows all these multiple systems to work optimally, that we realize that, that actually there are additional levels of nutritional intake that we need to allow really good function to happen. And a good example would be, say, vitamin D, and it's a very topical um, nutrient. It is, um, it is an essential, it's regarded as an essential nutrient, but it's really a, a hormone or a pro-hormone that's essential for steroid you know, pathway. It's essential um, as a communicating agent within the immune system. It, it has a, a whole range of functions. And it also, you know, if we look at some of the base functions, it, it is essential for managing calcium metabolism and therefore bone health. And it needs a bunch of cofactors around, including magnesium, boron, and zinc, zinc for example. <laughs> but um, yeah. so, so the level that governments are talking about that you need for vitamin D are actually based around bone health. So when they talk about, you know, the fact that you only need 10 micrograms a day of or 400 international units of vitamin D a day, that is the bone health threshold. If you take less than that, your bones don't do very well. Um, you know, it, it starts moving you in the rickets direction. Um, but of course, it's mainly kids who get rickets as the bones are developing. But what we know is we need about double that amount to actually allow our immune system to de develop. And some of that process is actually to do with our evolutionary journey. You know, when vitamin D naturally is primarily produced in the skin as a result of exposure to sunlight, we evolved in hot parts of the world around the equator where there was loads of sunlight. We didn't wear an awful lot of clothes. Our skin produced a lot of it. We were primarily dark skinned, so we needed to have even more of it. And as human beings have moved into ever more temperate latitudes and have got to colder and colder places and wear more and more clothes, um, we produce less and less vitamin D. And, and of course, we get a small amount of vitamin D from eggs and seafood, but you know some people are not consuming very much and we really don't get enough for this more evolved part of the process, which is really how vitamin D is used for the immune system. So even through our evolution, you know, basic structure and function, our skeletal system has one threshold, which is, you know, if you don't, if your skeletal system falls apart, you, you, you can't even 
you know, survive at all. But immune system doesn't have the same selection pressure because you can survive even with a relatively dodgy immune system, but you can't thrive. You can't thrive. Mm -hmm. And so as it's evolved and the immune system is really in a continuous state of development, um, and because it's tied up in so many pathways, we actually know now for optimal health, you need much more. And pretty much that same principle applies to every single nutrient um, that's out there. That there so are so on that note then, so if somebody's benefits. looking to put a number against it, Rob, you're talking about sort of 800 to 1,000 IU? No, more than that. I no, think. we really, really the, for an adult, the, the science to get to the appropriate circulating level of, of vitamin D, most adults would need to take about 5,000 um, units of, of vitamin D a day. Um, right. So, and that's is that a Caucasian? Because I mean, skin tone makes a difference. There it makes as well, a big it? difference. It um, Ro, we just uh, we just launched about two weeks ago um, a vitamin D campaign. It's on the homepage in the campaign section, front and center. You can see it there. There's a huge amount of information for the listeners. Fantastic. To go through with you know with dosing and you know and information testing. and testing as well. It's really it's really individual. You know you you. Two and people even existing in the same family because because we're asking this vitamin that we're taking now orally to go through our gastrointestinal tract, depending on how well we absorb it, right? And right. then depending on on our genetics, our underlying genetics, and you know genetic variations from one individual to another, we um, absorb it in different ways. If we have darker skins, there is absolutely clear evidence that we need more um and that's just you know because of, of the absorption and reflection aspect the the best thing one of the reasons that we've called our vitamin d campaign that mel said we've, we've recently launched we've called it a test and take campaign because testing your vitamin d level is now comparatively cheap you can do it between you know a tenner and 40 quid um okay. to have a home test kit um, the, the the cheap kits for under ten pounds sterling um, just tell you if you are in insufficient or sufficient. They don't tell you your exact level of circulating right. hydroxy vitamin D, um, and so you can't really tell if you're just okay or whether you're well okay. So whether you're in the optimal range. Um, and it also can't tell you if you are taking too much, because the interesting thing is if you take far too much of it, you can start to disturb calcium metabolize, metabolism okay. as well. So that's a good point for everybody to go at this Fantastic. stage. Just go go and go through that process that you're helping them through. A different type of test that can be taken at the moment. Yeah. Yes, so it's really easy. Um We've uh, we've detailed some of the companies in the UK, but nice. just but we've also said what to Google um, or what to search for if you're in another country. But um, home test kits are, are are really common now for vitamin D, and it's amazing that you know the one the one that we particularly like is linked to an app, and you literally get your results within 15 minutes. That's amazing. I know it's a big. I mean, it's becoming more aware. I think in the public's eye. But you've been talking about this for years, so uh, I we think have. Can yeah. I? There's just one thing while it stays in my head that I wanted to say is that um, for um, for vegans, obviously vitamin D is one of those um, supplements that is is not 
in the main is not vegan because um, it comes from sheep's wool, from the lanolin from sheep's wool. So a lot of um, vegan sources of vitamin D are always listed as mushrooms, which is D2, not D3. It's not vitamin D3. It's um, it's vitamin D2, which is um, less easily metabolized. You need quite a lot more of it. Right. The point I just wanted to make here is that you only find vitamin D2 in mushrooms that have been grown in sunlight. And as most commercial mushrooms are all grown in the dark, um, you <laughs> You need to put a line through that. And I just want to make sure that the vegan listeners go and source themselves actual vitamin D supplements because it is highly likely that, that they're going to be deficient. Great tip. My goodness. But these are the subtleties that people can't navigate through themselves, which is why I think what you're doing with all the work, the great campaigning you're doing, but also the, the information you're presenting. And, and it's almost gone geometric, the curve of information you started producing over these last few years. But I think it's based on demand and ignorance out in the public space, uh, um, which is amazing and, work. And just, just a desire for us to, to, to show people how easy it is to self-care. You know, yeah. we just want people to feel empowered that this is yeah. not, you know, your health care does not start and finish and end in the doctor's office or the hospital. Exactly. And in somebody else's hands, it goes back to this whole thing about I'm feeling out of control. And that's why people are feeling uncertain, which is where the stress comes in, but pulling that control back into their own hands. Ro, I think one of the realities that's occurred over the last few decades is that um, a lot of the information that people are provided with now is is being fed through a commercial right. entity that has a exactly. vested interest in it. One of the reasons that we are so passionate about what we do and why we do it within the framework of a non-profit is because we can remain objective in looking at the things that are really important for people without saying, look, we're just going to push this because we're selling it. Um, actually, you know, through the history of the Alliance for Natural Health, we've We've, um, I think this is the, I mean, this is we've the first so, time. We've sold relatively little. We've sold <laughs> al almost nothing. <laughs> um, we've sold almost nothing. There certainly haven't been products. I, I think this is the, you know, we've been having people, because there is so much information on our website. If you if you use the search box in it and type in whatever you want. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's like an oracle of information. information. But, but, you know. People have the, asked us for this for ages. And, yeah, you know. We, we are, we produce the ebook because of extreme demand. And, and, um, you know, we we are um, producing an awful lot of information all the time, um, but but yes, we've now got to a situation that people need the information so badly. But you also need people like me who will unabashedly promote you. <laughs> yeah. Whereas often when you're in the space, I mean, Mel and Rob, if you get to know them at any stage in the future, they're just so giving that it's not in their nature to necessarily promote themselves because that's not what they do. They they just serve in in a way. It's about information and value so for me and harms we can sell you don't worry because you, you, well, you've got some amazing stuff out there and i think you know this is i think the challenge you've faced over the years is all of your information is there in a form which is free a lot of it has been but people haven't been able to necessarily disseminate it and i've been asking how can we get that in a simplified form so the time you've taken to put into that and now in an ebook form where they can buy it but of course it's a non-for-profit everybody wins i mean yeah. well, this, this, obviously the, the the sale the proceeds of the sale goes 100 percent as a donate you know like a donation into into keeping the wheels turning in a and a exactly so thank you to everyone yeah we, no no it's now, fantastic we now as of about um well it's probably been um 
a year or two, but we've we've upgraded it. We we now have a, a two person in house you know video media. team media sort team. of me- media team. So so we're yeah. also able to produce much more video content, and that's also had a big which people like to see as yeah, well. It helps. Exactly. We're moving um, to a world. I'm just on on that note actually, because I mean obviously we're going to get you back in again to keep adding to because often you open up a a lid on something and we make a note of it and think right let's get them back in to talk about that. I'm conscious of the time on this podcast. There's two things I'd like to steer us through towards the end of this. So one is, uh, so can we just give them so, so uh, if we can talk about the stats, masks, and tests. I want to do that before we finish. Okay. So I think it's a subject. We, I think we can navigate through it in a way that's objective, but also just for anyone listening to say, right, I, I've, I've grabbed some of this. I know it's going to probably be there listed out in the ebook as well. But just to recap, we're talking here about looking after the gut, sorting out, just getting the head reset, go back into nature, slow down. In terms of new, uh, supplements, zinc, D, what could be their sort of three or four so, go-tos so, at this stage they need to be considering yeah. coming off this podcast? Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so zinc, vitamin D, um, vitamin C, and vitamin, oma- a. vitamin A, and um, omega, omega-3 fatty acids. So these have to be a base in their household, correct? They, sh- they, should, be, they should be like a you know, first aid, really, that you can take more when you need it. But I just wanted to say that we, I know we mentioned this on the last podcast, but there, there is an article on our website that goes into um, nutrients for the immune system, particularly for COVID preparedness and for just um, immune resilience. Because, you know, a lot of people talk about boosting the immune system, but we prefer to talk about modulating it because you don't always want to boost it but you do want to modulate it. So you want an immune system that is resilient enough to leap out and deal with an invader and a pathogen and then go back down in its box again. You don't, you know, you don't want to keep it turned on all the time. And it's the hyper response that is, that, that tends to be the real problem. People might've heard of the term cytokine storm, and that's, you know, when you start to really suffer with the part of COVID where people are talking about not being able to breathe and having um, a lot of um, lung symptoms, that is actually a hyper um, response from your immune system in, in the terms of a cytokine storm. And so there are ways of being able to make sure that your immune system is properly modulated so that it will respond appropriately. So if you go back, I think it was the 12th of March, but we have a, uh, we have a COVID campaign page as well. And that has um, a list of every single article, video, infographic, all the bits that right. we've done since this all started in March is all in that one place. I was going to say, actually, because you've you've systematically added to that over yes, this period. You've really have. been supporting that. So for anyone listening, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. But it is worth taking an evening or two or whatever your time frame is you've got available to sit and go through and process that. There's videos, there's written material there. It's one of the most informative, central unbiased objective uh, data sources that I've seen out there. Cause there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of people talking in different voices out there and there's conspiratorial conversations, but you've managed to navigate in such a way that it's objective and factual, which it's, I think it's everybody very needs. Factual. You're not going to find anything knee jerk, reactive, emotional. We also have not had to change anything that we've said from the beginning. So 
Um, for anyone who thinks that there might be gaps and you've got questions um, from this podcast, please just know that with, between the ebook and between the campaign pages, um, the vitamin D and the COVID campaign, um, you will fill all of those gaps. So I'm going to hand over to Rob now because um, he knows so much about um, the, the stats and the testing and everything. And just, um, yeah, and just just to add to what you're saying there, Mel. I mean, I'm, I'm Mel's being more polite. I want to say to all the listeners: spread the word, get this podcast into people's hands because. Honestly, we are going into a storm this next two or three months, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. We already know that history shows that when the days get shorter and it gets darker, you go to look at some of the, some of the places like Northern Sweden, people's emotional state can really be thrown off course and mental health is a massive factor at the moment. Add to that the fact that there's this additional pressure. Do everything you can to arm yourself up, modulate your diet and your, and your supplements and get this going now. Don't be somebody that reacts to something that happens to you. Be proactive now. I think that would be a strong message. And, you know, make your space at home, you know, a bit of a sanctuary as well. So, you know, have some proper me time and put some self-love into it. And if if you're someone who does suffer with um, seasonal affective disorder, SAD syndrome, then think about getting yourself um, a light box. Alongside vitamin D, the light boxes can be really helpful. Um, Elaborate on that just for a moment, Mel. So... Because our because our bodies need a certain amount of daylight, some people are much more susceptible to going into what's called seasonal affective disorder when the days get shorter and the quality of the light is not quite yes. as bright. Yeah. And so you need uh, so these light boxes that are I think over over three or five thousand lumens um, can actually mimic the full with spectrum the, daylight. daylight, daylight. Full oh yes, spectrum. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can spend twenty minutes just sitting, you know, working in front of your light box every day, um, which will give your body, you know, what it needs, as if it was in the summer months, and it really does help to take people out of that um, that slide into kind of the seasonal depression. And for anyone listening, don't think it's about just the light. You can't think, oh, can I just stick my lights no, off? No. <laughs> it's a totally different. No, these these light boxes are put, are, you know, um, you, we can't see it, but obviously daylight has yes. a full spectrum of color in it. Yes. And yeah. what these light boxes do is they mimic that so that they allow you to absorb all of that as well. That's a great reminder. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, look, Rob, you, you started the conversation at the beginning and I know prior to the podcast, I said, we were both keen to get this in mm. this conversation. It's a hot topic at the moment, masks and also testing. I think it's causing disputes and conversations and arguments in the public space, in families. Talk to us objectively and factually. I mean, you've been in and out of this space now, the two of you, and I know I've, I've heard some of the things you've said. And it's been, I mean, Mel privately messages me with links to videos, which I've sat and watched with my, my other half and we've gone blimey. Talk to us into that space. Let's let's hear your but your both your opinions about masks and testing at the moment in the current okay. space and, and stats and stats let's, and stats yeah if you have some that'd be amazing let, let's start let's start with stats the the starting point is you have to have a mechanism of understanding what risk this poses and that the bottom line is right now the stats around the world for COVID are completely mixed up with the influenza and pneumonia stats. Right. So what you'll what you'll have um, possibly heard, and what's very clear, is that during the southern hemisphere um, winter that went through, you know, June, July, August, there was virtually no influenza around. 
and um, the there appear to be and now what we're seeing in the northern hemisphere is that influenza is not hitting at the rate at which it normally hits us and it's all mixed up now there are two really important reasons that that is likely happening one is because there is a competitive interaction between the influenza virus and the COVID virus. And we don't know how much of that is going on. What we do know is applies to the second reason is that there is a real mixing up clinically between these various respiratory diseases. So when we when we classify in terms of healthcare stats, you know, we generally look at um, upper respiratory conditions, lower respiratory conditions, and pneumonia, and then they're grouped together because the respiratory conditions that lead to the pneumonia, remember that COVID, when it creates severe disease, creates a unique form of pneumonia, but it's still a pneumonia. There are many, many forms of pneumonia. It's just another form of pneumonia that can kill people who who, who are weak. Now we've got this additional organism in the mix that's that's adding to that and not a lot of influenza. So when we go to measure risk, what we really have to do is keep an eye on two main groups of stats. One is what is happening to mortality rates, how many people actually dying. And what we're really interested in is a thing called excess mortality, which is typically the number of additional people that are dying in a given week or month, as compared with a historic five-year average, okay? So right now, in many countries of the world, in most countries in the world, there is no excess mortality at all. So the amount of additional deaths that we're seeing are completely in line with what normally happens. So, you know, despite the fact that we see large numbers of cases, but even then we see case rates starting to plateau, there is not a lot of excess mortality. There is excess mortality as we speak currently in Spain, also in Italy. One of the most interesting things is to see there is no excess mortality in in Sweden, for example. Um, When Sweden had a fairly high rate early on, you know, a lot of that's to do with um, the number of, if you like, initiation cases that came in into busy metropolitan areas like Stockholm. Um, And then they had a number of errors, as we did in the UK, that resulted in significant losses in care homes. But what they didn't do is lock down the kids or lock down businesses. And in fact, economically, they've weathered um, the whole of COVID-19 better than almost any other industrialized country. And now what we see is the fact that the, um, to use the term that they're trying to depopularize, herd immunity. Herd immunity is a fairly complicated process that occurs because our immune systems have become adapted to the existence of a pathogen. And what we're seeing is this pretty resilient herd immunity mediated through Um, memory T-cells, you know, T-cells are part of the, we've got both B-cells and T-cells that are part of the adaptive immune system. That's the immune system that takes days to um, build up immunity. The innate immune system is the kind of 
starting point that we're kind of born with that is your first response team. But but the um, T-cell immunity has really been building in Sweden, and we see absolutely no generation of a second wave there at all. In the UK... That's, we have- that, that's fascinating, because we've got family in Sweden, so when it happened, it, we were almost like week by week seeing the difference yeah. evolving. Uh, uh, absolutely. So so when you then move to the test data, you've got to remember that when, when so we... Can I just jump in, Rob, and ask a question? So so there's something called the reticular activating system, which is when you become aware of something, you tend to... It's like you, you learn a, a new word and suddenly you hear that word everywhere. Or you think about buying a new car and then you see that car everywhere. What happened then? I'm just adding that concept to this conversation that you're having with us. We became aware of everybody testing and the results being presented to us about COVID and the death rates. But these death rates have been around year on year on year. We've just not, as a populace, monitored and looked at them. What you're saying is, if you look at it overall, for most countries, there isn't an excess. And had we been watching it year on year on year, we might have been much more aware of it. It's just this year, suddenly it's been magnified. Yes. And, and so the numbers in our head seem bigger, but the reality is it may not be anymore in certain countries. Precisely. And many, many countries have had, even through the peak of March, April and May, never had any excess mortality at all anyway. So this idea that... Um, that, that this is a global problem. It has never been a global problem. Um, what, what we've seen is a, a small number of countries, um, you know, the UK, the USA, Brazil, um, uh, uh, Peru, um, Iraq, um, Iran, sorry, Iran, not Iraq, um, being among those that have had significant problems. Right. But, there is no relationship between the extent of problems and COVID associated mortality and the degree of lockdown. Because if you look. So in, so, in the same way, somebody could develop an ache in their body, but not really notice it over years and then they're limping after four years, as opposed to somebody that in the fourth year suddenly develops a limp. Oh my gosh, I've got a limp. We've got the same thing going on here. We've got a virus that's become very apparent to people and everybody's panicking, which I understand there's been a lot of that going on in the background, but if it crept in over several years, we wouldn't have had the same reaction to Correct. it. Am I, am I understanding that right? That's my interpretation. You are, what, what we've got is, a, is a, a PCR test that identifies one organism amongst hundreds or thousands and we put all our attention into this one disease. Right. We, yeah, if we didn't yeah. have a PCR test, right now, throughout the world, we would just be living life as normal. This, this is an artifact of the fact that we are looking at the case rates associated. You know, So if you say that 0.09% of the world population have died um, as a result of COVID, which is what the statistics tend to say, if you just you, you go to Weldon Data or, or Johns Hopkins or whatever, pull the data off there. That that sounds quite bad. It's okay. It's not. It's not um, quite. You know. Um, it, it, well, it's well below one percent, but it sounds bad. But what we don't take into account is the fact that that's not caused. Those those are not deaths caused by COVID. They are deaths associated with COVID. And what this PCR test does is it amplifies an existing sequence of part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So it tells us nothing about whether that particular sequence that has been identified in someone is 
infectious, is active. So there's in science, and we it say could be that, old as well. Yeah, we say that there is no read across because what we would need for a test that was being used as a diagnostic test historically, we've always said that a case of a disease involves a particular pathology and a range of delineated symptoms. Now we say for the first time in history that the disease is associated with the presence of the virus, even if we know that these are just fragments. So, you know, one of the interesting things to do is to go to, say, Google Scholar and type in SARS, you know, COVID-2 and then put in wastewater and sewage into your search terms. And what you will see is the sewage systems, the wastewater systems of our planet are all testing positive. It doesn't mean that they actually contain the active virus. Wow. It just means they contain bits and fragments of this virus right, that right. you can amplify. There's a very nice peer-reviewed paper that's just been published that shows if you amplify more than 33 cycles, you absolutely cannot tell if that sequence is part of an active, infective virus. And the lowest number of cycles that any commercial PCR test is 37, almost deliberately selected to be above this 33 threshold number of cycles. And um, many of them are upwards of 40 or 45. So they're just amplifying fragments. They tell you nothing about whether it's infectious. Can I, can I ask a devil's advocate question? Sure. Then? Because if this was one of those shows where they go, right, we've got Dr. Robert Kirk on one side and we've got so-and-so on the other side counter-arguing, what would their counter-argument to that be to say, yeah, that's okay, Dr. Kirk. However, w- what is this counter-argument that seems to be skewing everything that the public the, the, believe the, the, the other side? The, the counter-argument is, is, not a, is not a very strong one. It's we don't have another way of... Of, you know, looking for the virus because that's <laughs> the only have. technology. <laughs> right, okay, that's the only right, technology right. available to. Yeah. So if it tests positive, hey, let's panic. And but it, well, but it's it, just let, it's just worth saying that um, Professor Kerry Kerry Mullis, who actually developed the PCR test, um, who sadly passed away last year, would be turning in his grave because he has said from the time he developed it that you cannot use it to diagnose infective disease. And the fact checkers have, have um, picked that up and, um, and said, no, it wasn't right. It's not what he said. And I, I've, I've had the pleasure of actually finding a particular interview from Carrie Mullis when he uh, was, was being interviewed after he got a Nobel Prize for developing the PCR test. And um, I think it was 52 minutes into the interview, he said exactly what Mel said he said. And, and, and one of his reasons, I mean, the, the guy was a hell of a dude, you know, he was a surfer, he was just a genius. He, he kind of developed the idea for PCR by amplifying genetic sequences when he was sort of driving up to the hills in Orange County or something. It came to him <laughs> in, a, in a daydream. <laughs> but he also he 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 was um you know he, he he was not part of the sort of mainstream establishment which is why i think some people are rather pleased that he wasn't there i think he is one of the most brilliant scientists ever and what he did was really fight a battle on this very subject around hiv so he was saying you cannot use the pcr test around hiv for much the same reasons and of course we all discovered later on that, that there was a, a real shenanigans of 
you know, the companies doing the HIV tests, making huge amounts of money. And then, of course, we found that there were plenty of people who um, had the virus, you know, particularly when you start to move into sub-Saharan Africa and you start looking, for example, at Nairobi prostitutes. And I should say I, I've spent some time in that world. Not that I've um, had a lot of experience with Nairobi prostitutes, but I, I was working in Kenya at the time that scientific colleagues were doing that research. And so right. you know, this totally changes our view. These yeah. women who are all sort of fairly high level are all kind of, they're full of virus, certainly in terms of what their PCR tests were, and they're completely healthy. And isn't it really interesting that the difference between them and the people out in the shanty towns who are dropping like flies with supposedly the same virus have massively different diets because the, the, the prostitutes are, are being wined and dined and you know have much more money. And it was the first time for me, this was back in the early 90s, that I started to realize, my God, the quality of nutrition can have a great impact. And, you know, it's, it's precisely the same when we look at, at, at um, SARS-CoV-2. The people who develop serious COVID are people who, one way or another, either they're immunodeficient as a result of age, because their immune systems are winding down because they're older, yeah. or their immune systems are compromised because of their underlying conditions. So, you know, what can we do to make people's immune systems healthier? And, you know, it's been a long old road for many of us who were saying right from the outset, taking your vitamin D, taking your vitamin C, taking your zinc, just for starters, combined with a healthy approach to your diet, minimizing your pro processed foods, um, consuming as much soil-grown food as possible, managing and transforming your stress. We know from, you know, decades of science that that is really important. We and now, staying active. Yeah, and staying active right, is right. a really big part of it. And we now have emerging science specifically in relation to COVID-19 saying that these are good things to do, which is why so many governments around, around the world have done a U-turn. And yes, on Vitamin D, what they've done is a U-turn to, you know, try and focus our minds on the lower level of intake required for bone health. And it's very clever when you look at the, you know, the, the, the small print around it. They're saying because people have been in lockdown for a long time and they're not going to have been as mobile, they're going to be being very sedentary. It's really important to think about bone health. And we're saying, hold on, this is also, you know, if, if you provide the amount of vitamin D required for immune health, you also provide enough vitamin D for bone health. So why not try and do two together? So yes, so excess mortality, really important to keep an eye out, realize that, 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 you know, right now through most of the world, there isn't a problem in terms of excess mortality. Let's go on to masks briefly. Yeah, that's fascinating, um, Rob, just before you move on to masks. So what we're seeing almost on a global scale with this form of testing is just that classic hammer and nail scenario where somebody in power has a hammer, so everything becomes a nail rather than look at it as the complex situation it is. That's one of my... Mums, that's uh, absolutely, that's much, ex exact, yeah. exactly the way it is. And uh, that's before we even um, throw in the curved ball of Bayes' theorem, which basically, you know, some of the greatest medical statisticians that have ever lived 
um, have been reminding us about the use of any diagnostic technique when you have low prevalence. So the long and short of it is quite simply when there's not a lot of COVID around and you use a diagnostic test, your false positive rate is likely to become very yeah. high. And when right, I say yes. very high, th this is where people like Matt, Matt Hancock still fail to get their heads around it properly. So it is the, the what, what is known technically in terms of the PCR test, the sensitivity that tells you what the risk of a false positive is. So a lot of these tests are sitting around about 96, 98% claimed sensitivity. What you've got to understand is when you move the thing out into the real world, you lose a few percentage points. So it probably takes it around, in many cases, to say 90% sensitivity. That does not mean that 90 out of every 100 tests is going to be accurate. accurate. What, it, what it means is in cases of low prevalence, once you apply the theoretical concept of Bayes' theorem to it, is, is almost the exact opposite to that that around 90% of your tests will be false positives and only 10% will be true positives. There's some complex science that goes behind that. We, we've we've yeah. done a video piece and a story piece on our website that looks as, at that whole area. But that is a big reason why using a PCR test, if you carry on using it, because prevalence as the infection starts to wane declines means in actual fact, you can never get rid of the problem if you're only measuring it as cases via PCR. So this translation of what was a health problem that was originally going to risk overrunning the hospitals and then now has been moved to studying case rates and then looking at hospitalizations where hospitalizations and even mortality is completely intermingled with other respiratory conditions right. means that we are, you know, the one thing we can be sure on is when someone is living or whether they've died, which is why I keep coming back to excess mortality as a real means of, of looking at this. And frankly, if you live in Europe, the most useful site to keep a look on is a site that is a result of a European Commission uh, collaboration called Euromomo. Euro MOMO, M-O-M-O. And um, if you look to the bottom of the graphs and maps section of that, you'll get to a thing called Z-score, which is a, a interpretation. It's a, a particular statistical view of excess mortality that tells you um, where you are. And they've got lovely graphs. You can see it in terms of the age groups affected, but you can also see it by country. And mm. you can see it over time in relation to five-year um, mean excess mortality and essentially where the curve passes the red line that means you're moving into excess mortality that is greater than um, normally expected excess mortality for a given period of, of the year that's really useful for our international listeners yeah. actually <laughs> so but just just i mean there's a, i don't want to go down the rabbit hole because it's, it's a whole conversation here but think of the emotional and psychological impact of somebody that's had a test that they believe is now positive, but actually could have been a false positive. Now they carry that forward and maybe believe that they've developed a natural immunity and, oh, yeah, I've had it. And then they they have to then self-isolate, which if they're running a business, they're self-employed, has impact there. And then there's a knock-on effect if they've got kids in a school. 
it doesn't even bear thinking about because we're, we're living in that situation, aren't we? It's huge. It's huge. We, we, the knock-on effects. I mean, this is this is the true cost. The true, you know, the true cost of what's going on at the moment. And it's also, you know, if I remind people how we started is by saying, but you know, you can rise above this, and you can choose to look at, you know, through a different lens, and you know, and just accept it let it go and turn your focus into a different direction so that it doesn't affect you as much. Taking control, which is what, yeah. So, okay. So masks, let's touch on that before we wrap up. (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) the the only way really of, of looking at masks is by using what we would call a balance of evidence approach. So you have to assimilate all of the science, obviously prior to February, March last year, there was no science specifically on transmission, either for, you know, in terms of your risk of passing on infection via aerial droplets or, or, um, or, or having it yourself. Um, so we had to look at historic data. So the historic data goes to other respiratory conditions. And you'll right. see that when you look at, um, you know, other viral pathogens, respiratory diseases, the evidence was crystal clear prior to um, SARS-CoV-2 coming along, that um, there was no advantage for anyone wearing a mask in community settings. That is very, very clear. The only situation where there was a marginal advantage was in conditions of very high viral load exposure in right. hospital settings when you're dealing with people who are full of virus and, and shedding everywhere um, in, in, in a, you know, operating theater environment, dealing with tracheostomies, etc. So what's happened now is we're, we're kind of 11 months in and there are individual studies that, that have come up. When you use a balance of evidence approach, um, there's just been a brand new study coming out of Denmark. Again, it's confirmed pretty much that there is no big difference with other respiratory viruses, that there is no net advantage um, for mask wearers versus non-mask wearers. We've seen a consistent pattern of, of, of the evidence in that direction. What we are beginning to see is also some negative evidence for people who wear masks a lot. The The biggest problem seems to be, for the individual obviously, is associated with the fact that the you know, our nose and mouth breathing is pretty much through evolution has been designed to to not be interfered with, with putting something in the way of it. So when you start to obstruct breathing, you maintain a higher level of moisture around it. So your, your potential risk of either having um, skin infections or even respiratory or, or infections in the mouth area are higher if you wear a mask, particularly if you don't change it and you allow that reservoir to 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 build. But of course, the the logic of mask wearing that is being communicated to the public is that you're not doing it for yourself. So hell hell to it if you if you are worse off. What about your risk of passing infection to other people? Where the science seems to be moving here is that there's a very clear pattern of behaviour associated with regular mask wearing, which means that people touch their masks a lot. And if they're touching their masks a lot, they're actually also touching infected surfaces, then touching other surfaces. 
and and potentially increasing the amount of transmission that might might occur. So in a nutshell, using a balance of evidence approach, we have seen no consistent overall evidence that supports mask wearing in the community. However, in the hospital setting, under conditions of viral load, um, it's it's pretty important. My my eldest son is a, is an ENT surgeon, um, and he has been involved in dealing with tracheostomies with with COVID patients, and it makes total sense that that people like him are wearing masks. But out in the community, makes no sense whatsoever. It's worth it's worth reminding people that you know when they're used in in surgery and everything, the 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 surgical environment they are is under positive pressure. They're pumping more oxygen in. Um, they're making sure that you know the surgeons can can still breathe. That's why it's a very rarefied atmosphere in, a, in an operating theatre. They change their masks really frequently, but yeah. the, the the reason why there are so many papers out there about this is because they've spent so long studying the adverse effects on surgeons operating, um, because from headaches to you know all all that's all that side of it really fatigue headaches. Um, because because it does you know impede your um, your flow of oxygen and it does obviously increase the amount of carbon dioxide that you're rebreathing as well. So you, might, you add to that to the, the psychology, the pressure, the lot, the short day, say winter, all these things are just it's like a cocktail for somebody's it emotional is. state. And I know I shared with you, Ro, as well, that I've seen data coming out of New York now from the dentists yeah. there where they they are actually um, they've actually coined a new term for the syndrome. They call it mask mouth. Mask where mouth, they're yeah. saying that the mask is causing such an imbalance in the microbiome of the mouth. It's causing dysbiosis. So that um, you're getting all these cavities and infections and gum disease and you know they're they're finding that you know people are people are struggling the ones who've been wearing them sort of long term so i love this because it's an an objective conversation around what what people are having as an extreme extreme discussion and they may use that argument flippantly which is well if it's okay for and and i hold my hands up to this at the start i was saying well if it's okay for surgeons they must wear it. It must be okay for us. But like any kind of sort of directive or instruction, it's way more complex than just this simple statement. And so I'm so glad that's been discussed there, like in an, in an objective way, just discussing, you know, the, both sides of the the arguments that may exist in culture and society, but giving us a way to sort of navigate it. It's, 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 you know, it's such an emotive thing. And I know, I mean, it shows at, at the heart how human beings are deeply compassionate and you want to do the right thing. But, you know, let's bear in mind that virus particles are, are beyond nano, you know. And so there's a, there's a great video that someone did right near the start where he, he's wearing a mask on the video and he actually breathes out vape smoke from from there and you can just you know it's a good way of seeing what happens and so you know you imagine these i mean it's going to be like using a chain link fence as well to deal with these virus particles so it just changes the direction of flow and and i think you know all along i'd say that the most important thing that you can do for yourself and for others 
is to make sure that you are in resilient health with mm. an immune system that is properly modulated. You can underline then, that, yeah. You know, and, and if you can then share that information with others, if everybody is robust, we, we, we've evolved next to all of these pathogens. And you can already see, I think Rob will confirm for me that there's been a couple of hundred mutations already of, yeah. of the SARS-CoV-2 um, virus. And so you're also seeing a lot less virulence. And this goes completely in line with what we know from an evolutionary basis, that, you know, when, when a new pathogen arrives, it can be, you know, it's much more virulent and then it passes through, you know, a whole load of people's bodies and our immune system. The magic of our immune system gets to work. The whole thing changes and then it becomes way less. So you look at the common cold, you look at the type of flu that we have now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all the same thing. It's it's you know, We just need to not be frightened. So I just want to sort of add in case there's a confusion on the, on the mask front. So the, the idea of sneezing into your elbow and hand washing on the other hand, is actually very well supported by science. And I think, you know, when you're going into potentially unknown, potentially high viral load environments like a supermarket, it is a great idea to come back and, and, and wash your hands thoroughly before you um, just, and you, you don't need antibacterials or anything, you just need soap and water. There's very clear evidence on, on that as well. Um, mm. And, um, you know, sneezing into your sleeve, binning your tissues, all of that, that's always been catch it, bin it, yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. The, the, those mechanisms of basic sanitation have always been the most important mechanisms for managing respiratory pathogens, and they remain exactly the same for for COVID nineteen. Amazing. I mean, there's so many things that are coming out of this conversation. Whenever we wrap up, as you know, we usually have an action list, but I think the action list would be too long. What would be uh, Something that you could leave the listeners with, whether it's to do with questions for them to reflect on, something for them to sort of steer away from this. There's a lot to absorb and they may have to replay some of it. But what well, what could uh, be the I'm things they could first. consider as they leave us? I'm, I'm going to go first so I can leave Mel with the last word. How about that? <laughs> so, um, so look, uh, what, what I think that people need to be doing to maintain sanity through all of this with this extraordinary array of information and diversity of views that's being put forward is that you have to at some level run in your mind your own kind of risk benefit decision process mm. you, you you know you you can't go into this without trying to get some handle on what the actual risk is and when you look at risk you've got to discern between what is the risk of the virus and what can i do to reduce that risk, we talked about hands washing and sneezing in the hands and all the rest of it. But also, what is the risk of the government mandated policy decisions to my life, which might be what impacts are going to have on my business? Um, do I have to accept that? What can I do to resist? You know, am I making the smartest decisions in terms of where I think this is all going? Have I managed the risk well, so you've got to look at that whole risk side from those two perspectives, but then you've got to look at the benefit side as well. So the benefit is about how can you stretch benefit? Okay, you mm. might say I'm a reasonably healthy person, but have I moved myself from maybe borderline risk of metabolic disease? Am I carrying some kind of a spare tire around my middle 
that I would do well to get rid of, and I've got the beginnings of that talking fat. Um, have I got my sleep under control? Am I managing my stress properly? And am I doing all I can in terms of looking at the quality of the foods that I'm putting into me, the timing? Have I looked at the possibility of becoming keto adapted, which is we know puts you into the most immune resilient state that you can, allows you to bounce back from stresses, whether that's contracting an infection, whether it's having stress at work or at home, you know, we live in a stressful environment. So we, we would look at, you know, what ways can you change your behavior so that you increase your overall resilience? And then the other side of benefit is with this change world that we now exist in, is it only downsides or are there some plus sides? One of the plus sides that some people are able to focus on is, do you know, I now spend more quality time with my family than I did before. Maybe exactly. I'm working at home. I'm now, because we're forced to not go out so often, we've got to cook more at home. I'm having more quality time in the kitchen and in the dining room, you know, without the digital devices close by with, with my family. Um, I'm making the most of my ability to interact with, with, with close friends. I'm actually spending more time building friendships and relationships within my local community than I was before because I was before jet-setting all over the world. Um, I'm not contributing to such a big carbon footprint because I'm not spending as much time on, a, on an aircraft 35,000 feet in the air. So, you know, so, so look at risk from two perspectives. Look at a benefit from two perspectives realize that that you know we are we are moving to whatever way we look at this peculiar time in our history life won't be the same from 2021 onwards as it was before and you know coming back to the point that mel was talking to is that we do have a lot of control over our destiny try and think of the positive sides for it so those that risk benefit analysis i do it i keep on doing it. i have to pinch myself every few days to yeah. recheck the information i know now the virus doesn't pose a major risk to me because i'm in resilient health it doesn't to my family and i know there's a lot of unnecessary you know stress going around because people don't necessarily you know they haven't checked out what the euromomo stats are, are looking like and say right in my country actually there's no big problem at the moment um, let's check again in three weeks because there might be a delay between hospitalizations and mortality. Oh no, we're still on track for where we normally are. There you go. That's my fantastic, amazing uh, Mel, Mel. Over to you. So um, I would just like to say that self care starts at home with n equals one, and you know if we can make sure that we are in resilient health and as happy and feeling as well as possible. Um, happy and well people are people who are able to open their hearts and be compassionate. People who can open their hearts and feel compassion are less likely to be contributing to divisive behaviors and increasing the divide that we're seeing from the terrible polarities. Everywhere you look, there's polarities. And just remember, you know, united we stand, divided we fall. And, you know, this also this notion of the fact that we have the power to change 
um, the collective consciousness. I'd really like to leave everyone with that thought that imagine if we all held the intention and the vision of the world that we would like to live in, that we would like to pass on to our children, that we would like the earth to experience and every being and resource on the earth. Imagine if we all held that vision and we just allowed what we saw in our daily reality to just, you know, observe but not absorb it. The power of that is what shifts a collective, a whole collective consciousness. It changes the world. And so we really are all powerful, sovereign beings. And we do not have to think the way the mainstream media is telling us to think. We could hold a different thought. And if we hold a different thought, we immediately create a different reality and we change our our experience. And through doing this, we'll change the experience of those closest to us. And it's the ripple effect as the ripple goes out. But it all starts at home and, you know, a little bit of self-love, me time and getting yourself into the best possible resilient place that you can um, on every level. And you've given us an amazing process to do that during this podcast, which, by the way, for the listeners, is our longest one on record. So, oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And, well, and, and rightly so. Two, two fantastic ways to end. I'm going to just personally say thank you and namaste to both of you for coming on. I think there's um, definitely subjects to pick up again, so we'd love to have you back again if that's okay. Oh, we, lo- we, we love talking to you guys. Thank you so much for and, having us on. And we've only just scraped the surface of a couple of issues. I know. <laughs> I know. Totally. No, the, the, the listeners are going to be running and hiding. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, thank you to Rob and Mel for joining us. The wisdom and the words that have come out from this, you know, Mel's described it incredibly well, where we have this polarity and we've experienced a conversation which talks in the space which doesn't divide. It's, it's rational. Mm. It's objective. It allows you to think for yourself. It empowers you to think for yourself. and everything that's been discussed and the important links, for example, the ebook, the website, the campaign guides, I will link up in the show notes. And once again, thank you to Mel and Rob for joining us. That's myself and Rose signing off. We shall see you on the next episode. Hello, it's Dr. Rowe here. Harms and I would like to both personally thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Cicado Show. And if you've gained just one insight, something positive that you're able to use on a personal, on a professional level to help your life and maybe other people's lives, then please complete an important action for us, which takes less than just two minutes. Please become a supporter of the podcast by going to cicado.com. And as a thank you, you'll get access to exclusive supporter perks. And don't forget to simply subscribe to the show Share this product with loved ones and we would love if you would take a moment to give us a review and let us know just how amazing this episode was. Thanks again for listening. This is Dr. Owen Harms signing out. We'll see you on the next episode.